Welcome to Something for the Turbo, the new weekly podcast brought to you by Unfound, the global platform for the travel-loving cyclist. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Something for the Turbo. I hope you are all well wherever you are listening in the world. It seems bizarrely longer than a week since we last published an episode, but it is just that, trust me. Last week's episode was with Rory Sutherland, and if you haven't managed to listen to that one yet, do, because it's a cracker. But we've got another brilliant episode for you today. But before we crack on, please, please, please do subscribe to the podcast. If you're enjoying it, please do tell your cycling friends. And if you're new to the podcast, please go back and have a listen to some of our previous conversations. We've had some amazing conversations with cycling personalities from around the world. And again, if you aren't yet part of the global cycling community at Unfound, please do download the Unfound app. You can find it at the App Store or on Google Play. And all you have to do is register to join a global community of cyclists from around the world, sharing rides, photos, stories, articles, asking questions, and a whole lot more. Anyway, today we caught up with Henrik or aka fellow chef to talk through his journey from becoming a chef to building a two michelin star restaurant in stockholm sweden and then moving into cycling firstly with the norwegian cycling federation and then with team sky where he spent five years he gave us a fascinating insight into the world of professional cycling what the pros eat and when logistics how it all works his experience of working with team sky from the inside with riders like chris Froom, and he also talks us through his superb books his cooking books and his latest exciting adventure in oslo norway anyway let's crack on i'll bring you henrik Henrik, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? You well? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, Jill, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. Is it getting cold over in Oslo now? Not quite? No, we can definitely tell that autumn is coming. But uh, today actually is uh, sunshine and, uh, and 12, 13 degrees. But it's, we had like a long period now with heavy rain and really shitty weather, if I can say that. So yeah, definitely winter is coming here. Winter is coming and it comes hard and fast in Norway, right? Because it gets very cold very quickly. When does that kind of happen? Well, Oslo, where I live, is kind of like a funny city because we have like, there's um, there's quite a big uh, change. Uh, we have like a big diver- diversity in altitude. So if you go to a certain part of, of town, it can be, I think it's like four to 500 meter above sea level than, than like city center. So if you it can be raining. Wow. It can be raining downtown and snowing up in the um, area called Holmenkollen on the same day. No way! I didn't realize that. That's very <laughs> cool. Quite fascinating. That's very cool. Well, look, thank you so much for taking the time. As I mentioned, obviously you are you are well known as the as the Velo Chef. Yeah. And I think I think everyone listening is certainly interested, if not fascinated, around food and and what the pros are eating and so it's gonna be great to sort of delve into that. But well, why don't we go go back to how, how you got into either being a chef and do you have a cycling background have you always loved cycling how, how did you get into sort of marrying cycling and and uh, the work you do in the kitchen uh, that took quite a long time actually i quite early uh, on uh, realized that i wanted to be a, a chef so yeah. so basically when we, uh, after school when it you, you some at some sort had to choose your career uh, i was very clear that i wanted to be chef i started to like cooking that was my thing so i went yeah. basically all in uh, and and started my training. I went to France for training. Went to school and did everything, and then started to work at basically good restaurants. And I did that for many many years in total, like. Just quickly there. I mean, what what does the training look like? Because obviously, I have no idea how one trains to to be a chef. But what? How does it? Just yeah. It's interesting to learn, right? How, yeah. What does it? What do you do? How does it work? Yeah, I can. Well, this, I can just tell how it works in Norway because that was a school I went. That was we have like two years in school where we yeah. learn a bit 
of everything. You have baking, you have uh, chef, you have pastry, and you, like you do, you start off, you do a little bit of everything to just to know the the whole uh, the skills on everything. And then like second year, you choose a, a bit more specific if you want to be a, like a baker or a chef, and I choose chef. And then then after that, it's basically you go to like a two year practic. So you basically apply for a job at a restaurant and you stay there for two years. And after that, you do like a test, uh, which you either pass uh, or fail. And then you get a like, then you're, if you, of course, if you, if you pass the test, you get like a certificate that you're like a trained chef or, or, a, or a done the school and, and have a certificate for that. So I did, I did that. And then it's quite pressurized, right? I mean, it's, it's, I, I find it as such an interesting trade with regards to it's, it's so sort of technical and it's so yeah. sort of specific from a technical perspective, but then quite uniquely, it's also quite creative as well. There's yeah. not many jobs in the world where you have the sort of technical focus and that ability to be kind of creative and bring in ideas as well. No, that's true. But, uh, and then quite quickly, I, I found out that this was way back. Uh, it's 20 years ago now. So at that time, France was still like the, the gastronomic place to be in the world so yeah. so i went uh, for two summers i went down to france to to train at a three-star michelin restaurant in the middle of uh, in a basically middle of nowhere in in france for for a few months every every summer for two years so it was wow. quite fascinating but it's like a hard school to do but but fun to have done now and it was fun then as well but everything was different because you know we, we didn't have we didn't send emails or like direct instagram emails we you know we we had to send like a handwritten letter and wait for a few months to get like a an answer <laughs> an answer if we could come down and work you know it's like looking back at it now it's totally very fascinating time to be honest yeah and in my head i have sort of images of a three-star michelin star restaurant in the middle of nowhere you sort of working all hours with a yeah. sort of volatile chef that's that's very very hard boss is that how it was no actually out there where i was was kind of like um it was a family uh business so basically the father like the the father and mother would be like the owners and and like then had the names on the restaurants and their sons was in the kitchen and as the, well, it was quite okay actually to to be out there it wasn't it wasn't that like sort of gordon ramsay style which you could see on television now these days so it was it was a very good experience good so once you qualified where, where did you where did your journey take you next uh, then i went back to oslo for a few years to to work on different restaurants in uh, in oslo um just to get experience and and do do all different sort of styles of restaurants uh, for a few years and then the journey took me to to sweden stockholm Oh wow! Okay, which was basically I went there to to eat at a restaurant uh, together with a friend and found that place just being incredible. And then uh, when I got home, in terms of in terms of the food, or in terms of the food and everything, and that's just something just clicked on that place and just this is a, i want to be a part of this was my basically or instinct and then uh, when i got home uh, from that trip i basically phoned them up and asked if it was possible for a, if they had a had a job available which they didn't have at that time but i was lucky enough to be able to come and do like a week of training just to just to just to experience the place and as it happened when i was there that week one guy decided to leave uh, leave his post and, and, and do something else. And then 
I was asked uh, if I could do that, if I could step in for him. And is this a, a famous restaurant in, in Sweden? It was a restaurant called Bon Jok, uh, by a very famous chef called Matthias Dahlgren, which I later on went to work eight years together with. So he sort of like wow. very formed my career after that. So yeah. we stayed Amazing together. Amazing working with someone like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, uh, yeah. He's sort and, of and a mentor just, for me. And just just to go back a bit slightly, you mentioned that you were in a restaurant in Sweden and you wanted to be a part of it. Like as an occupational hazard, do you, do you enjoy going out for dinner, or is it always are you always kind of thinking uh, like assessing the food from a from a technical perspective? No, I I really enjoy to go out for dinner. I'm, I do not do, do it that often anymore since since you got kids and you know it's a bit like yeah, hard to get out right, it's yeah. hard to get out, but. I really enjoy yeah. it when I when I do and and actually to sit down and just eat and being served and and be a part of a restaurant. I love restaurants. It's a it's a fantastic thing. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. So so the two of you worked together for for eight years in in Stockholm the whole time, or that took you yeah, all no, over, did it? No, Stockholm all time. So that was his first restaurant, which he closed down in two thousand and five, and then I went back to Norway just for a little year or a couple of years, and I did did some different stuff uh, being at home and then he re uh, readdressed uh, to a new place after a year so he opened in 2007 uh, at the grand hotel in stockholm which was a really ambitious place and i was asked to come on board as a sous chef to start with and then yeah after two years i i became the head chef so i was there for like almost five years and then uh, i was a part of opening that restaurant with that team and we took it from opening to get two Michelin stars within uh, within two years. Wow. What a journey that must have been. Like pretty intense time as well, right? Yeah, that was probably the most intense time in my career to that point. It was uh, it was more or less breeding that that restaurant 24-7. Uh, even yeah. if we had, I mean, there we had a weekly closed restaurant for, for two days a week. So it was closed on Sunday and Mondays, but you would... You would spend all day, like, or, or at least half day anyway, on those days to work and talk to producers to get products. And, you know, it's like we had this huge network of local produ- products uh, that need to, to be there for, for Tuesday morning when we open. So, I mean, you, you, were, you were on job 24-7 on that. So when I left, left it after, after that time, it just, just <laughs> we're sort of like just exhausted by the whole thing. Yeah, just burnt out, I'm sure. And, and, and for those of us that, that don't understand how it works, how, how does the Michelin star process work? How, how do you go about getting awarded one or two, as you did in this case? Well, that's, <laughs> that's kind of hard to, to answer because Michelin, there's so much mystique around them and there's so much myths and, and you don't really know who the people are that comes and, and visit your place. But obviously... Oh, uh, I didn't know that. I thought it was a process you went through. No, so no, no. Just... That's the fascinating, oh, wow. thing, fascinating thing with the, with the Michelin guide system that everything is still very, very anonymous. And, wow, okay. And their inspectors try to be do everything very secretly and they hardly well at, at least they don't want to know who they are so they want to they book in different names and they're coming different yeah so they, it's it's the whole mystique around them you don't know when they actually are at your restaurant and they're coming coming to your restaurant uh, over a certain period to see if you're at their level and then, and then you're just um, uh, when there, there's like dates every year when they announce the like the results. Yeah. And then you just get to know. 
at that same day. Wow. There's no like, <laughs> there's no no more than that. Just, you will just be a part of the list, or you will not be a part of the list. That's insane. I didn't realize how that works. So when yeah. you find out you're on it, that must just be unbelievably exciting. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's all very that hard work, all yeah, paid off. It's very nerve wracking, especially for for like the owner of a restaurant who who knows that there's a set date when the guide's going to come out, and you don't know if you're going to yeah. get a star or you're going to lose a star, or if you will not get anything. It's like that build up to that is like a yeah, the, the Olympic ceremony almost. I can imagine the closest thing yeah. you can get to that is like. The, the the different between getting one or losing one or like just be able to to still have it it's just like so much pressure on the on the guy who who holds them it's uh, it's unbelievable to be honest yeah yeah it sounds incredible <laughs> so uh, I, I totally understand why you needed you, you felt like you needed a bit of time out after that period yeah i did uh, it was like uh, you came to a point where you sort of like you had enough it's like I have to to breed and, and do something different, and 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 I, I kind of left that place without having a plan. I was just, I was just like, okay, let's just go with the flow here now and see what's happening. Uh, I know I'm good enough to get a job, basically anywhere. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I will always get work, and I wasn't afraid of of being out out of it. So I sort of just when I handle in that I'm going to leave, it was just like. Okay, let's see what the the next few months bring bringing and and uh, yeah, things started to to happen. Is that the things recycling? Is that when the cycling thing? That was when the cycling started to to uh, to happen. Yeah, so. Um, so it was a happy accident, or were you? I mean, did you follow the sport? Did you cycle yourself, or yeah, yeah? Well, I come from a I come from a family with uh, where the sport was hugely important, but. Both my father and and uh, brother was Norwegian road champions. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. this is cool. I didn't know this. No. Sorry, I've clearly done my research. No, 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 no problem. My father was was like one of the best cyclists in Norway in the in the seventies. He did yeah to uh, the Olympics in seventy two and the Olympics in seventy six. And uh, my brother became a Norwegian junior time trial champion in the beginning of the nineties. So the sport was basically cycling was all about what we did in the, when I grew up, you know, we didn't go to football matches or, or anything like that. We went for bike races in the eighties. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's well and truly in the DNA. Yeah. I sort of grown up on, on that spending like the whole summer from, from when I can remember that we, we always went to, to bike races because my brother, my father was his trainer and my brother used to race. So we were we were always every weekend we would go to a new race. Amazing. Yeah. So did you did you did you think then that there might be opportunities within cycling for you, or you, it was a bit of a how, no, how did that, it come that, about? That came out of the blue basically. So this was in two thousand and eleven, and then yeah, uh, the year before, uh, Tour Husov has had won the the world uh, road race down in Australia and became the world remember, champion. Yeah. yeah. So that gave the Norwegian Cycling Federation uh, like a big uh, boost in sponsorships and money and everything. All of a sudden, they had uh, budgets to do things they could never dream on before. And then I, I, knew, I knew the guy who was like the manager of the Norwegian Cycling Federation. He was an old friend of our family. And my father used to train him in the 80s. Okay. So, so he just phoned me up. Uh, one day and asked if I knew of someone who was interested in coming with them 
to cook at the World Championships in 2011 in uh, Copenhagen. And I said, yeah, I think I think I knew or I know of a guy who, who can do it. I'll do it myself. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wicked. So that's yeah. fantastic. Amazing. So that's where it started, really. I didn't have any experience with cycling whatsoever or, or like cooking for riders. I knew about the riders and, and knew about the sport. But I just thought that if I go in here and make nice, clean, healthy food, I think they will be happy. And that was what I did. And I think I did a quite okay job because everyone seemed to be loving it so i went i did that for for a for a couple of seasons uh not only that of course because the world's only that's only a couple of weeks a year so in between yeah. that i did a lot of free freelance jobs and, and other thing but but this cycling thing kept kept going and and then around this was 2011 2012 um team sky started to become hugely successful and Wiggins winning the 2012 Tour de France. It became very. I became very interested in what they were doing. How what what sort of like nutrition are they doing? How can I how can I see what they are doing and and take that with me to the federation job I'm doing for Norway? So through Edvard Boasenhagen, who was uh, riding for Team Sky at that time. And it's going back, right? Or to Ineos? Hopefully. <laughs> next, next season, huh? I think he's going back there. Yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not signed yet, but let's, let's just... It's not signed. Oh, sorry. No, it's it not announced. No, it's not announced. It's just uh, rumours. So let's see what's happening. Rumors. Yeah, rumours. But it, that, Good. Would Good been, that would have been great. I think that would have been a perfect uh, end to his career anyway. But he helped me to get a foot in uh, in the team. So I was allowed to go down to one of their camps, which they do every year at Mallorca. So this was January 2013, it was. I got down there for, I went down and spent like a bit more than a week down there um, and and worked together with their chef at that time. And then when I was uh, just about uh, going to leave, they asked if I was interested in work a little bit for them because the program was increasing and they wanted to have chefs for more races and and the one guy they they had he couldn't cover it all because it was too much. So with double programs and everything, so I thought that was a brilliant opportunity to to jump in there. And and then I did uh, first first year I did maybe fifty days, and then from that it just started rolling to the year after like ninety, and then the three years after that was all on like hundred and sixty days per year. So I was full wow. on then. And it's not only full on just from providing the food, but just the logistic op- operation around like yep. getting the food, to races and stages. Talk us, talk us through. Well, let's go back to the the sort of winter training camp. Like, yep. h- how does that work from a food perspective? You must be planning in advance in terms of where you source the food, and 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 are they eating differently off season to during races? How does that work? Yeah, that's quite different actually, because uh, logistically, the 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 training camps in in December and January are probably the easiest for 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 us chefs because we're based at a hotel all the time, same hotel yeah. for like almost two months, and 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 the hotel work with suppliers, so we basically just do orders, and next morning we will have everything uh, delivered on the door. So those two months are really for us. Uh, easy that way but then we work together with in that period of year the the nutrition is very based on 
um, on the type of specific training they do. December specifically is uh, quite often a month where a lot of guys uh, is coming back from holiday. They maybe been had a time off in November and like are picking up the bike again. And that's gonna quite often just start with like long distance riding and and but but with low what is it energy intensity yeah yeah exactly you, it's no it's not much effort in that uh, period so it's just to get the body up in shape and it, then it's quite often very much low carb food so okay. high protein vegetables but low carb yeah because and, and uh i mean do you uh, were there any sort of vegetarian riders in, on the no. team at that time and no no okay so everyone was eating meat yeah everyone was eating meat or, or protein so yeah so that 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 month is we're cooking like high protein and 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 a lot of vegetables and, and all this and and also breakfast mm-hmm. breakfast at this point can also start like a low carb breakfast would be only would be no porridge no bread n- nothing carb because they're going to go out for for like a ro- long carb um, burning ride so they didn't want uh, lo- like low carb rides so what would you would that be eggs and lean lean meat at breakfast maybe like salmon or something like that what what, yeah, what, what that would you be, be uh, omelette would be ideal to start with like omelette omelet. and maybe like yeah let's say that we probably have like a yogurt or something like that uh greek some, yogurt, yeah. yeah like a greek yogurt and then yeah not so much more than that really and then just out on the bike for quite a few hours and they would not drink any carb drinks before after maybe three to four hours Uh, okay but would they eat on the bike for those low intensity (laughs) rides would they yeah probably not not too much the first first three to four hours um but but then when they get back then it's full uh, carb again so they then they want like a high carb lunch when they get back Okay, and, and give me a typical example of what that looks like. Well, that's pasta, rice, yeah, general carbs like that, quick potatoes, whatever, sweet potatoes. Uh, of course, together with with meat and and salad and vegetables and all this. But but then then high high carb as as soon as they get back, yeah, yeah, just to refuel and, yeah. and get ready for the next day, I suppose. Yeah, and and in terms of time, obviously they'll they'll have lunch straight after they've come back from a long ride and, and then for dinner what, what kind of timings wise do they do they eat dinner quite early um or what, what is there any kind of well of- uh at uh, at a training camp we can be pretty consistent we could i think we had like dinner seven or seven thirty quite late yeah but at a race it's uh it can be much later because of uh, transports and and all this after stages yeah, it can take much yeah. longer time. So then, then dinner can be nine, ten, depending on when the riders get to the hotel. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and and talk us through sort of race day or the day before race day kind of menus or, or yeah. what are they thinking about food wise when they when it gets to the race season? Yeah, like a normal normal race day would be for me to start in the kitchen around. I would be down at around seven o'clock. Start cooking preparing porridge smoothies some fresh fruit like uh, newly baked bread and all these uh, normal things which we had in the in the breakfast if it was like a hard stage climbing mountain or whatever we would um, we would at least uh, offer to have um, some extra carbs rice pasta available on the on the morning buffet and then when the riders get in we um, we would cook them an individual omelette on their on their uh, like order 
on how they would like to have it individually yeah. every day. And that protein obviously helps re- with recovery after a long race, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. And how, I mean, are, they, are these guys very, very careful in terms of what they're eating? Or are they eating quite a lot? Talk us through. Yeah. Yeah, they, talk us through that, really. They're not afraid of eating because like in a high, in a grand tour, for example, I mean, their their burning is so high that they probably yeah. are their bodies are burning more uh, carbs than, than they can absorb so they're definitely not afraid to eat and they need to eat a lot to be honest to be able to to stay on the right side and and really be uh, able to do all those all those hours and uh, every day yeah but, but they're yeah. very specific in what they don't eat you know they're they're super afraid of of, uh, of gaining weight or like fat yeah so they're okay. super, super selective with dairy products and and certain types of meat, which is extremely fatty, which we wouldn't serve them anyway. But but you know, a lot of at least for Team Sky, they were there were a lot of people who were good climbers. And then if you're a good climber, you want to bring as little uh, weight up the hills as possible. So yeah, absolutely, of course, yeah, of course. Yeah. And and how I mean, did, obviously each rider sounds like they have their own preferences and their own views and things. And I suppose a part a part of it is an education for them as well right making sure that they're not sort of attaching to various dogmas about various foods that might be not correct i'm sure the team addresses that from a nutrition perspective but exactly yeah they're trained and they're having i mean if a new rider comes uh comes on board the team they have like good conversations and, and all that with the head nutrition and basically it's our responsibility as chefs to to provide them what they need every night for for dinner yeah. breakfast and, and all their meals basically so if you that's i mean it's pretty tough right so you've got a whole load of you got a whole team everyone's probably got their own individual preferences you're trying to cater for everyone yeah and then if you add in the fact if you're doing it for a grand tour like yeah. by the third week it must be you must be like scratching your head with ideas of what yeah. to cook or how to keep everyone particularly yeah. if the tour's not going well or yeah. things you know people get frustrated and stuff yeah well um the, th- the thing how we choose to do it at, at sky was that we we made a buffet for everyone, which contained everything, basically. So if, if guys had sp- certain specific what they want, I don't, I can't remember anyone had any allergics or or, or something like that. I think every, everyone ate, basically. Well, someone was like, I'm not so fan of fish or whatever. That was not the reason. But we would, we would prepare every night. We would prepare at least two uh, types of proteins, either being fish or, or red meat or chicken or whatever meat that was okay for a certain type of stage and then we would prepare at least four different carb options being rice pasta potatoes uh, whatever and then just a good mix of fresh nice vegetables and cooked vegetables in all in all the different different uh, shapes and then we would uh, also do our homemade like juices with vegetables, fruits, and all that. Instead of just drinking water all the time to to uh, to your dinner, you can actually get quite a lot of vitamins uh, from drinking a nice juice. And then then something sweet uh, to have after the dinner. Some of, of very often like fruit and yogurt and or something like that. Or or best uh, a piece of cake or whatever it could be sometimes so you no, have to you, you must be exhausted after a tour right after three weeks of that you must be absolutely <laughs> wrecked right yeah it's tough work it's long days so and, and in the middle you're doing shopping you're you're doing uh, a transport and uh, a transfer to next hotel and you're in and out and setting up and and packing down and doing dishes and, and everything so you 
you probably work like 15, 16 days every day in a grand tour. That's crazy. That's crazy. And like, like a lot of teams, there's a lot of mystique around, particularly sort of Team Sky and yep. or Ineos Grandiers, they are yep. now. What, what was your experience working with them as a group of riders and the management team there? How did you, how did you find them inside, I suppose, behind the, uh, the, iron, the iron Curtain? Yeah. Well, I, I I thought it was a great place to work. I sort of, I, I, I compare it a lot with this type of restaurants I used to work with, which was very like competitive because we were always, when you're working at that level restaurant I did, you're always tuning everything. It's, it's sort of, you, you can really put marginal marginal gains into a restaurant as well because you're always looking looking for how you can improve your products. Um, yeah, to be the best, right? Yeah, and to, and to to improve the restaurants in every single detail you're doing. Yeah. And I found that very fascinating with with Team Sky then, or uh, that whole that we're, we're whole time we were pushing pushing it forward. So I um, mean, it, it happened a lot nutrition wise from the from the five years I was there. You know, when we started, we didn't we we went cooking in hotels, used their kitchens, and it happened then that we. Uh, we're not welcome in the kitchen as a chef you know we would call them up say hey we were coming Paranese for example is is coming up we would get a list from the from the organizer and saying these are the hotels that you're going to stay on and then we had to start emailing each every hotel saying that we are coming and our riders prefer a certain style of food and we would prefer that we cook it for them so we can cater the best for them at all time and then it would happen that hotel chefs would say sorry you're not welcome in here we we can cook ourselves and that wasn't that wasn't too good for for our guys you know because they were uh, used to have the food we were preparing for them and our style of food so when that happens over a few times or it would happen occasionally then at the end the team said oh this can't happen anymore so that that they took the step and then invested in this huge uh, kitchen truck which was which became um, oh yeah That's yeah right. so we we bought this like uh, truck that was built a few years before uh, which had a, basically a very nice kitchen in the front and the back was like a restaurant it opened up like to double size and the riders would eat inside of it so that became like a game changer for us i think because we could just so much more control our own products of course the rider the riders could eat in uh, like protected environment yeah where you don't have people coming up to them asking for things you know you could sit in a hotel restaurant together with a lot of other people you know can be sick or whatever yeah so yeah, it's yeah. a much so more much more controlled. more controlled environment and and we uh, we it was a it was a nice place to be it created like a whole boost for the whole team like we would yeah. have like the mechanics would have their morning coffee in there in the morning and then the riders came in and it's like it became this uh, meeting place for everyone which yeah which was nice uh, amazing to be honest yeah really cool really cool and, and in the five years that you worked with sky did you yeah. see an evolution in terms of the type of food they were eating and the kind of menus that you're preparing or was it pretty consistent throughout for the last like two or three years i think it was pretty consistent but change i think we changed quite a lot the two first years because i think that was just basically around personality because i'm not the chef who was there before me he just had a different style of cooking than I had. Okay. So yeah. I think I, my like footprint on the food was just different from from uh, from how he used to cook, basically. So that probably was a big change for the riders. But uh, for me personally, it wasn't it wasn't that much of a change. But 
but I, I think for the team it changed over time. Yeah. Yeah, and, and obviously you got, quite personal. For with regards to the races, obviously do you feel a part of the the team. Well, of course you're an integral part of the team, but do, are you on that journey with the riders as well? It must be an incredible experience to be on a tour or or, yeah. or a one day race where the team are out and performing and knowing that you're a part of that. Yeah. Did you did, did you feel a part of it? Was it one big team? Yeah, definitely. And I think after we got this this like truck, we because um, it's it's a very small environment. And like the kitchen and basically restaurant is, I mean, it's less than a meter from each other. So, you know, yeah. they would sit at the dinner table and would ask, or I mean, I could hear it talking and, and just from, from one day to another is, yeah. And, and it was, it was a great time. Definitely came very close to, to the guys basically in, in that uh, period of time. In that team. Yeah. Are you still in contact with some of the riders? A few of them, not really, not really much. Cause I mean, they're so busy all the time, but send them. A few of the guys send them texts if they do well, and they always answer and, and yeah, keep a good good sentence with them. Yeah, yeah, very good. So you finished up with Team Sky. What's it around twenty seventeen? Was it exactly five years? Was it? Yeah, twenty seventeen yeah. was last season I did. And, and what what was next? What, what what have you been doing since then? Then, well, in the middle of this, also I've done the Velochef books. I did that. Which That's... you haven't? Yeah, we'll put them. We'll put all the details in the show notes. So do check out the uh, the Velochef books. Yeah, so that was done basically in between all the sky work i put on top doing at least two of the books <laughs> on top of all yeah. that so that was pretty hectic as well but after that i've been I, I kept on freelancing in stockholm and then last year i moved back to norway after 12 years in in uh, stockholm and the idea and plan was to be a part of um opening the service course in oslo which is the place from Girona, which is done yeah. owned by Christian Meyer. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And um, Garens is there as well now, isn't he? He is. Yeah, definitely. He's, he's the CEO of, of the company. And um, yeah. yeah, so the, the whole plan was to, to, to be a part of that and uh, open like a cycling cafe, uh, like a La Fabrica together with the service course in Oslo. But unfortunately, we we landed a bit uh well the the building that we were supposed to be in the landlord didn't kept her promises to to oh, nice. to take the short version so unfortunately the service course is open and it's a fantastic store that's, right, yeah, that's open though right yeah, yeah that, that, that's open. yeah yeah but but uh next door should have been a la fabrica which of course sadly didn't happen because of the landlord yeah as she said she didn't she didn't promise what she say in the beginning in terms of contracts and 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 all that so unfortunately that didn't happen and and when that was sort of laid aside, then Corona hit. <laughs> so uh, maybe the timing wasn't too bad anyway. But then, yeah, so I've been freelancing in a bit and, and doing being here in Oslo. And and I don't know if we're allowed to talk about this, but you just mentioned off air when we've, we've before we started recording that potentially new new projects in the pipeline. Yeah, no, we're definitely gonna are allowed to talk about that. Yeah, so oh, um, so when the uh, unfortunately, when the La Fabrica didn't happen, I I felt that Oslo still still needs this place. You know, we need a a place uh, to for the community to to gather in Oslo to do it uh, and, and give them like a really home uh, of cycling where they can eat, they can gather, have a great coffee, just view cycling or whatever. So I uh, I teamed up with. Um, Hans Flenstam, which has been on on your show earlier. So yeah, and I didn't even know you guys knew each other. So no, that's, uh, yeah, that's awesome. so we yeah. do now. Uh, and then another uh, guy, a British guy who lives in Oslo, called Aaron Apu. Uh, he's a food and beverage uh, experienced man as well. So we thought that this need to happen, and then we 
basically have been uh, planning for this for uh, since the summer and and yeah so the we have built the foundation for the company and uh, we are currently looking for a location to to house it and then uh, hopefully we uh, we can start up early next year we're hoping to be open in march march april next year it's the brother this is um, having known Hans for for a little while. Um, yeah. I think this is a super exciting project. Obviously, a, a, an amazing community in in Oslo and a wonderful yeah. place to cycle. But talk talk us through a little bit around your vision in terms of what you see this clubhouse being and, and what it's going to offer the, the community there. Yeah, first of all, we uh, a part of and a good uh, why Hans is uh, is in this is that he wants to have like a home for the Oslo Dawn Patrol. Yeah. So, which means that this place is going to be open. Like we hopefully are going to be open seven o'clock every morning to to at least uh, two to three times a day when the, uh, a week when the when the dawn patrol visits we we will have them in serve them breakfast coffees or whatever and then after that we will continue with serving lunch at this place and a few nights a week we will be even open for dinner and it, it will be the food will be basically based a lot of the ideas and thoughts around my books natural good food cooked with uh, high quality products in a in a in a very cycling uh, in a setting which has inspired by cycling to be honest brilliant yeah and and are you planning on sort of having a, a ambiance where people can come in and do a bit of work from the from there during the clubhouse or yeah. work remotely and pop yeah. in and out and have casual feeding and then yeah, definitely. Yeah, we're, we're going to be open for then, everyone who come want to come and, and sit and work for a few hours or definitely be open for that because I think like um since the corona came here like a, a lot of people has been forced to have home offices Exactly yeah that's what yeah. I thought I think there's such a market there to have somewhere yeah. people can come in and then you yeah. can do you know, obviously associate yourself with some events and yeah. maybe do some Q&As in the evening, get some Absolutely. guests in and stuff. And, yeah, we're going to use, um, uh, of course, all, all the all the contacts we have, basically, to, to do events and, and, and happenings as much as possible around the clubhouse to get, uh, get it uh, to be a place that's really alive yeah and also yeah. we're going to do of course we're going to screen all uh all races uh for the season which we're going to do like the theme up with the food so yeah. when yeah. we do the belgium classics we will have some belgian beer on on with from the areas with a specific food that fits the area and also when we get to the grand grand tours we're going to have a spanish italian french food uh inspired on the menu for for that period of time right so, we're uh, so really it sounds like you've got a great combination coming together it's very exciting oh, so. i mentioned oh, so. Hans when we had him on that I've, i always wanted to do the midsummer ride so yeah maybe i should come on over and we'll, we'll record a podcast there at the same time we'll do it from inside the cafe yeah that would be great welcome yeah see how you guys are getting on yeah it's very cool excellent that's that's cool well i wish you you guys all the best with with uh, locating a, a venue and do keep us in the loop in terms of how, how you're progressing and stuff yeah we will just as, as we wrap up just as sort of final to to people listening who I, i'm sure if we opened it up there'd be people who have millions of questions uh, yeah. to you with regards to nutrition and stuff but what what kind of key points and and uh, messages can you give to to amateur cyclists out there when they're thinking about their 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 nutrition and their diet and stuff like that? Are there any sort of key pointers, or do you see kind of amateur cyclists making obvious nutritional mistakes or thinking about things in the wrong way? What are your views, having had the insight that you, you've had and that and seen seen the sort of elite 
performers eating on a on a day-to-day basis yeah i th- i think my view is that i think uh, most amateur riders probably does it a bit too complicated sometimes like they're overdoing it i think to be a to compare to what the the pros eat i mean they eat very very stripped down pretty normal food but it's more about eating the right things to the right time yeah which is uh, is the importance here uh, so, so timing and consistency yeah and definitely um, simplicity really yeah are the three takeaways i yeah. think so and and Forget about all these like superfoods and and all these things that been created by by the business, uh, like uh, some sort of industry. I think just do eat normal and eat healthy by buying clean, fresh products. Yeah, yeah, clean, clean fresh foods exactly. And and people can find uh, numerous recipes in your books, right? So yeah, that if also- you're interested in getting. Yeah, exactly. If you're interested in, in introducing some new recipes to your to your diet, do check out the books. We'll put it in the uh, in the show notes. Yeah, which great. Is cool. Super. And one more question for you: Do the riders sneak the odd biscuit or uh, beer during during the race season, or are they very very disciplined? I think like biscuits are when they're on bike, uh, they they probably have a biscuit uh, or like a piece of cake actually to to. Um, when they are in the race situation, they get that every now and then. But like beer and alcohol, they stay very, very, they're very professional with that, to be honest. There's no, there's no like drinking under the table. <laughs> uh, I, I under the table, but they, do they treat themselves to the odd beer or, or that's pretty, that's, that's a no-no sort of, that's an off-season thing well, or, or not at all probably. The, the, the things we like, I've, when I only saw it happen was when, the times the the couple of times when we won the tour so yeah. they would have yeah. like uh, then the, the dinner the dinner after uh, the lo- uh, second last stage before paris they would always like request some sort of like hamburgers or whatever and then they would drink one or two beers with that and that would be it really amazing uh, amazing discipline really given yeah they are actually that. really yeah. Uh, hard on themselves uh, and it's, yeah. uh, it's it's a really tough life to be honest uh, I've, I've seen like the what they go through in in the build up to uh, to Tour de France, for example, when we when we go to altitude camp, we stay at uh, um, the Taide, um Tenerife for like two Tenerife, years. Yeah. yeah, Tenerife on top of a mountain for two weeks, and and it's all about like low carb eating, long rides, uh, and it's it's tough for the guys, you know, because they are probably losing a bit of weight and it's just like, oh, you can see someone, uh, I've been there two times with different group of riders and you can just, yes. you can just see who tackles it better than other guys. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting, to be honest. And also yeah. a, a tour, a, a, like a grand tour is very interesting to see in sort of like how much and how hard it actually is. Because, Often they come in, start a Tour de France. Uh, they're in like the best shape they can be. Everything is yeah. easy. They yeah. they're happy. They're they're talking. You know everything. Everything goes fine. But then when you get into that third week, it doesn't matter how good you are. You're still gonna be tired. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. how everything like like a human being just goes from being like on on the best shape of their lives to like getting just walking in to eat uh getting in the stairs to the truck is hard for them <laughs> the last week and like just broken aren't they? they're it's just broken just broken yeah. and they hardly speak 
uh, during the dinner because everyone is just like want to get it done <laughs> so blimey and do you see the i mean it must be quite hard watching that from the inside basically do you see the mental strain on the riders as well is that something you felt that they they have a lot of pressure on them yeah i think it wasn't something they talked about during the dinner but there's you I mean there's natural pl- pressure when you're riding for that team uh yeah and it's like i'm pretty sure they feel it once especially if you're if you're uh, taken to the to the tour with that team uh yeah. of course you feel the pressure there's no doubt yeah, right. right i mean when you're people that are anxious you can feel i mean were there ever times where you 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 felt the tension and and nerves no not really but you know there there's always well there's build-up and the tour is always was always special, you know, because everything would be double check, triple check, check again, you know, in terms of equipment, in terms of everything we brought there, everything, uh, basically all we had built up all season, starts from January. It's like it's yeah. selected, you know, already in January if, if you're a part of basically the tour team, and then yeah, and then the same group of people travels as much as possible together into the tour so when we get to the tour everyone knows how everyone is working how everything is so everything is tested uh, before we get to the tour to run as smooth as possible and also with the riders you stay me as uh, as a chef i would stay very close to the format and with chris Froome and and the, and the the most important riders around him i would stay with him for as much as possible through the season so when we got oh, to the really? tour, everything would be just, yeah. Familiar. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's an interesting proposition. So, you, yeah, yeah that's, uh, I suppose that's another little marginal gain, isn't it? That, yeah, that well, consistency and familiarity. Definitely. Yeah, you just try to build also like a, a safe routine around him and, and the, his usual guys, you know. So I would basically do all his races the whole through the whole season to just to be around them all the time yeah and he seems like a nice guy he's a good guy chris is a super guy super yeah he's so uh, thankful and he's so helpful he's a warm and yeah i know he's a amazing uh, personality and bike rider of course it seems, just seems quite down to earth i always feel a bit sorry i think it gets a bit of a rough time in in, in the media in the press because he yeah. i think he seems a very nice down-to-earth guy no he really is it's nothing other than yeah good things to say about him as a person he's he's uh he's a gentle gentleman absolutely and an insane athlete as well yeah definitely unbelievable yeah very cool excellent well that's a a good spot to finish i think thank you so much for taking the time hugely appreciate it thanks for having me uh, very very excited about the the clubhouse all the very best with that please do keep us in the loop with the progress and as i mentioned before everyone if if you're interested in the velo chef books the link is in the show notes go check it out and get yourself a copy for yourself or for your friends for christmas (laughs) there you go thanks a lot thanks for having me all right henry good to speak to you take care of yourself thanks bye cheers mate bye Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. And more importantly, don't forget to download the Unfound app and join cyclists from around the world on the hub. We'll see you on there.